Uh, hey, if it wasn't clear, uh, to go to that Holy Spirit retreat, you have to sign up for it. And this is the last Sunday. Uh, registration will close Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. So get on that and use the invite cards to invite uh, your sick and injured friends to come to the healing service because we always get some good stories that way. And we want to come to that service with a good mindset of faith, which is what our sermon series has been on uh, the last several weeks. Uh, Warm-up question. Um, have you ever been low man on the totem pole? Like in your job or your social situation or your school situation? Have you ever been the low person on the totem pole? Ever been? Ever been low man on the totem pole? How was that? How was that for you? It was no. I just see some like severely, dramatically shaking head. No way. How many? That was a great experience. I love being low person on the totem pole. Go ahead. Raise your hands. Yeah. Never want to do that again as long as I live. Your hands are busy fanning. Not going to commit. Not going to commit. Because I know how this works, and Jordan will make me feel like low man on the totem pole if I respond. Okay, a slightly different question. When you were low person on the totem pole in whatever that situation was, how did people treat you? You're, you're, you're the low person on the totem pole. There's a hierarchy. There's some sort of status ranking. You're kind of on the bottom of it. How did people treat you? What's that? Say it loud because I'm, I'm leaving the fan on today. I could turn the fan off. Or you could speak up. We have two choices. So I will ask again. How did people treat you when you were the low person on the totem pole? They ignore you. You were expendable. You were expendable. They could dismiss you anytime they wanted. You're expendable. You were interchangeable. You were a cog. All right, what else? You rejected. It made you feel rejected. What else? Made you feel incompetent. Right, that's interesting. They treated you as if you were incompetent. Treated you as if you didn't know what you were doing. All right, so didn't feel great to be treated as if you were low person on the totem pole. Um, did, did that treatment, did that situation help you to have a positive attitude or did it encourage you to have a bad attitude? Bad attitude? Did it help anyone have a really positive attitude? One person? All right, well, I think it was supposed to help you have a positive attitude. I think it was supposed to help you have a positive mindset, and let's talk about that uh, this morning. We're in this sermon series, like I said, called, you know, the, the battle of the mind, or the battle for the mind. Do you have a mindset of faith, or do you have a mindset of fear? And that's a classic battle that goes on in each of us all the time. The first step in the battle for faith which is a, a mindset, an attitude. Faith is primarily an attitude. Faith is not what you believe. Faith is what you do with what you believe. It's how your attitude responds to what you believe. So uh, the first step to, 
to cultivating an attitude of faith is, is to be aware that the primary battle of your life is actually a battle in your mind. It's actually the battle for a faith mindset instead of fear mindset. Every battle in your life starts with that battle. Whatever the circumstantial battle is, it begins inside you with the battle for your mind. Are you going to have a mindset of faith or are you going to have a mindset of fear and its cousins? There are a thousand different varieties of fear, right? Anxiety and complaints and stress and all that stuff. Your mindset should be determined by your choice, not by your circumstance. And in fact, the worse your circumstance and your situation is, the stronger your internal choices must be. And that's the primary battle in your life. I don't know what you thought the primary struggle in your life was, but I'm telling you, that's the most important battle in your life right there. If you are afraid of something, if you are stressed out about anything, if you are anxious about anything, question it immediately because fear and stress and anxiety and complaint and negative attitude is actually not acceptable for Jesus followers. Do not succumb to it. Now, we're all human, of course, so we struggle with that, you know, and there's grace and nobody's perfect and stuff like that. But the first step is to realize that that's actually your core struggle, as it is my core struggle. Take it from a depressive, you know, someone who has just struggled with, who struggled with depression in, in the past. It's hard to really get on top of your attitude and your mindset. Now, when your mind is set in the sort of faith that expects victory always, then you will always experience victory eventually. That's the rule. That's the principle. And it is a true and reliable one. It is called the mindset of faith. And it is a powerful mindset. It is the most powerful mindset. It is also worship. If you have the mindset of faith, that's the best sort of worship that you could do because you're trusting God. And that is the sacrifice that he appreciates most. When you always think in every situation, hey, God and I are going to do something great with this. When you always think that, you've done it. You've achieved the mindset of, of faith. Now, Jesus talks about the mindset of faith constantly uh, in, in the Gospels in different ways. He's always mentioning it in different situations. He says that faith, the mindset of faith, if you can get a grip on it, well, it changes everything. It can change anything. He says if you have faith you can say to this tree, get up and move, and the tree will listen to you. He says if you just, if you just have a, a grip on a little faith, a mustard seed side faith, you can say to this mountain, move, and the mountain will move. Uh, he actually said that, which is an impressive and challenging thing to say. Uh, when Peter first walks on the water and then sinks in the waves when he becomes afraid of the storm, Jesus yanks him out of the water and said, you are doing great. Why do you have such little faith? Jesus' norm is that we should have enough faith to, to be able to walk on, on water. He doesn't understand why we don't have that kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that he operated in, obviously. Uh, somewhere around nine times in the gospel, Jesus says to someone who receives a healing miracle, your faith has healed you, or something quite close to that, which is something worth considering as we go into next week's healing service. Are you going to come with faith, or are you going to drag your behind in here 
you know, 10 minutes late, sit there complaining about the heat and wait to see what happens. What are you going to do next week when sick people come and need the church to give them a touch of heaven? That's the basic challenge. Jesus says, faith makes healing possible because faith is trusting God and trusting God is the point of life. Anyway, we've talked about that stuff a lot. Uh, a mindset of faith is best anchored in an appreciation of God's nature. What do you think God is? Do you think God is a reluctant boss that you have to convince to give you what you deserve? Or do you think God is an incredibly generous father uh, eager to see great things happen in your life all the time uh, if you just uh, trust him? Uh, so for a few weeks, we've been talking about things that we might fear, uh, common fears that people have, uh, common fears that we buy into, that we surrender to. Because if you surrender to a fear, well, then you're not moving in faith. So we talked about different fears that are really common. The fear of people, you know, reputational fear. We talked about the fear of, uh, of failure, uh, which is a very common uh, fear uh, that, that we have. Uh, and we're going to shift gears this week, and we're going to uh, spend uh, two or three weeks talking about... Um, things that you can do to empower the mindset of faith. So rather than talking about mistakes to avoid, we're going to talk about practices or, or frame, frames of mind or cues for thinking that will actually help you anchor yourself in the, the mindset of faith. Mind cues is how you think of them. Uh, if you've ever been in sort of uh, any kind of behavioral uh, therapy or reconditioning, people will sometimes talk about mind cues. For instance, if, if you suffer from social anxiety, you're really anxious around people, a therapist will sometimes coach people. Uh, instead of thinking about how you feel when you get into an interaction with someone, think about what the other person is thinking. Think about what they're feeling. Think about what's awkward and challenging for them. And you get your mind off of yourself and you start thinking about the people that you're interacting with, and that will often help reduce social anxiety. It's a mind cue that helps you get anchored in a healthy place. You understand? Um, if you're given to compulsive or addictive behavior, uh, sometimes uh, therapists will, will try to, to coach you to be what's called mindful. Like you reach for something or you crave something, you're supposed to take a breath and think, okay, what am I truly feeling right now? Why do I really want to grab that food or that drug? Why do I really want to do this thing? And so that is putting your focus back on yourself so that you don't act mindfully and habitually. So sometimes that can be helpful. Uh, it just it, it depends on what the situation is. If you're in some sort of physically demanding uh, exercise. For instance, if you're sitting in a church that feels like a sweat box, right, a good thing to do is to take a breath and relax your body because tension creeps upon you gradually and pretty soon you're anxious. Uh, in distance running, I'm, I'm a distance running coach. You know, athletes are in, in the third mile of the, of the race and they're straining and every coach from every team will shout, relax! Relax, relax. You have to relax. You can't struggle against yourself. Just struggle against the race. That's enough. 
And we do that a lot. We struggle against ourselves. Jesus talks about having a divided mind or a mind that accuses yourself. Anyway, those are all mind cues that helps, that help. And, and today, uh, we're going to talk about how thinking like a servant, thinking like the low person on the totem pole, conceiving of yourself as a servant can actually help anchor you in the positive, powerful attitude of faith. So we're going to talk about the power of, of the servant mindset. Now, Jesus talked about being a servant a lot. Have you noticed this? Those of you who are students of Scripture who read through the Gospels, Jesus is always talking about how important it is to see yourself as a servant. Sometimes he uses a stronger word. He says that you need to see yourself as a slave. You need to see yourself as the person that is always serving uh, other people. Um, in, in Luke 22, uh, he said, uh, the kings of the Gentiles are the leaders of the non-believers. Lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, the higher status a person is, uh, the more goodness is ascribed to that person. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the least, and the leaders among you must become like servants. That was, that was Jesus' teaching. It's, it's, it's the origin, like culturally, of the word public servant. Right? Our politicians, when they get elected, that's what they do. They, they see themselves as servants, and they serve everyone but themselves. Right? Right? Jesus says they should. He says something similar in Matthew 20. Uh, it was a stock teaching of his, so he returned to it often in the Gospels. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. So the high-status people have all the authority, make all the decisions, get all the glory. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here he talks about his attitude. He said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a big deal in a way, but I came as the lowliest servant that I could possibly be. I actually think of myself as your slave. Try it. See if it works out for you. How many of you are like, looked yourself, you looked yourself in the mirror this morning and you said, I'm going to put on a slave mentality. <sighs> it's bracing. It's exhilarating. You have to be careful what you mean about that phrase. But Jesus suggested it. He suggested that we should see ourselves as the servant uh, for everyone, the low person uh, on the totem pole. And then, you know, he was constantly doing things that reinforced the image. Maybe the most famous comes from John chapter 13. On the eve of his death, Jesus knelt. Uh, he, first, he stripped himself down, which in that culture would have been very humiliating. He knelt and he washed the disciples' feet, which would have been a very lowly thing to do that only a lowly servant would do to handle someone's grimy feet. We wouldn't even be comfortable with that in this culture today. But in that culture, it would have been just incredibly lowly. 
when Peter protested, he said, no, no, I have to do this. It's my role. It's my job. You go serve other people, but I serve you. And this whole bit about being the servant of everyone, Jesus took it really seriously, and he kind of became famous slash infamous for it, right? Because he hung out with the lowliest people. He hung out with the most disreputable people. And he seemed to prioritize them and to serve them most of all, which was probably true. Jesus revolutionized popular morality uh, with this sort of, of idea. Now, there's an irony, there's a paradox in Jesus' teaching about seeing ourselves as servants and slaves, because you'd think that conceiving of yourself as a lowly servant would kind of destroy your faith, Right? Because we all have had those experiences when we were the low person on the totem pole. And I said, what did that do to your attitude when people treated you like the low person on the totem pole? And everybody said, well, it harmed my attitude. It really made it difficult for me to carry myself well and to behave well, right? But Jesus seems to indicate that, no, actually, if you see yourself as a servant, it should it should make you more powerful, which leads me to believe that we handle it wrongly, that when we feel like a servant, we choose fear instead of faith. It should be that when we feel like the low person on the totem pole, when we conceive of ourselves as a servant, we should choose faith. I think we screw it up. I think we're too status conscious. Right? I think we're maybe too, I don't know, ego-driven or something like that. Uh, I mean, not, not us, but you probably know somebody. Probably the person next to you is too ego-driven, so turn to the person next to you and just go. Fan them, just so they're aware of your moral superiority. You'd think that being a lowly servant would destroy your, your faith attitude. But actually, I think it's the only way to maintain it. If you don't conceive of yourself as the servant, if you don't conceive of yourself as the servant for everyone, then you'll probably lose your faith attitude. It will probably corrupt your faith attitude. Uh, it will rust it away uh, with pride and the sense of offense because here's the thing, if you see yourself as the servant of all, right, if your job is to be the lowliest person, then it's really hard to get offended by how people treat you. And it's really hard to complain about your station in life and stuff like that. And let's face it, being offended, having a bruised ego, complaining about your station in life on a weekly basis, that's what destroys your attitude, is it not? I mean, that's what does it. That's what seduces you away from a pot of positive, wonderful attitude of faith and anchors you in an attitude of, oh, this stinks. Am I right? That sense of, of offense. I've had some, some powerful life lessons on this score uh, myself. Um, I, I'm fond of saying, perhaps you've heard me say it, that God has often advanced me in life, but he's only done it through failure. Uh, failure has been the, the most creative force uh, in my life. Uh, one of these episodes happened um, uh, right after I had, I had left academia. I was, I was pursuing an academic career for a while, and I had gone quite some time in it. Uh, had some uh, 
uh, some prestigious fellowships and stuff like that. I was working at Harvard for a couple of years, and it just wasn't working out. It just wasn't working out. And so I, I just abandoned that career path. I, I mean, I, I couldn't make it sustainable, uh, uh, is, is what I meant by that. And it was very disappointing for me to have to walk away from that after putting so much into it. My first uh, job um, was at this... Uh, this uh, software company, uh, this startup, and I just, I just wanted a job. I just wanted to, you know, change my life. You know, I wasn't looking for anything, so I got involved with this company. It was populated largely uh, with uh, uh, friends that I had made uh, at church. Um, before going to grad school for a short while, I worked for a computer company. I had a tiny bit of background, so I joined this company first to, to write code, to be a programmer, uh, but but it was a small startup company. Those things are often fluid. So, it, so I started working in business development and marketing and sales. And pretty soon I was like the VP of marketing for this software company. Um, and, uh, and there were some troubles in the leadership. Long story short. So what happened uh, was that I got to a point where I was, I was kind of half running this company. And, and then the president sort of, he, he raided the coffers. He took all the money out of our accounts, and he left the country, no kidding, for, uh, for a few months. And uh, so he took all the money and he left, and there was only me in charge, situationally. Uh, that's how it worked out. Um, and so I had to figure out how to save the company. Uh, and I, I remember I had to report to the company's board you know, what, what had happened. It's, oh, the president has left. He took all the money. And for complicated reasons, they disbelieved me. And they blamed me for the trouble. And it was just like months of incredibly hard work for me. I won a few extra contracts. Um, that was about the time of 9-11. We lost a couple contracts when Manhattan uh, was attacked. Um, very dark, very a dismal time for me. Um, and... Um, Everybody was looking to me, blaming me for the situation. We got through it uh, by the grace of God and a lot of hard work. And then the president resurfaced. And rather than getting blamed, rather than getting charged with malfeasance, he fired me, blamed me for the trouble, and everybody believed him. Uh, and I had a choice at that moment, right? I mean, for a while in that situation, I was like, I just want to make sure that my friends can get paid. I just want to keep this this company afloat. And I worked very, very hard. I, had, I was a good servant, you know, like those servants in the parables when the master goes away and leaves the servant in charge to be faithful with the investment. You know, I was that guy. I worked really, really hard. And then, you know, when the president came back and things sort of settled, suddenly I got blamed instead of glorified. I should have been celebrated for that magnificent work, you know? And instead, I lost my job, and my wife was pregnant, and we had a, a, a mortgage, and it was just a terrible situation. And I, I remember thinking, it's like, well, how should I respond to this? And I thought about this teaching. I, I, well, I can't say that I thought of it. I think Jesus probably spoke to me about it. Right? And said, well, what about, what about being a servant? And I was like, I tried that! Yeah, well, what about being a servant? Well, these guys are accusing me falsely. Yeah. What about being a servant, Jordan? What about, you know, loving your enemies and stuff like that? So, 
That's what I did. I swallowed really hard, and I decided to serve the company, see that they made the transition back to the original president, and, and the board stayed intact. You know, I did that stuff. Come on, applaud me. Come on. <laughs> Feed the ego. I don't think you're getting the point of the sermon, people. Um, it, the, the situation uh, really sort of, sort of stunk. And uh, it started a, a very a transformative transitional time for me. That actually ended up with me in, in Honolulu. Ten years later, right, over a decade later, uh, the truth started surfacing. And people from the board contacted me. Uh, the president had been thrown out, and, and my friends had been part of this church. They had sort of, sort of thrown me out under these false accusations. And so all these people came back 10 years later, over a decade later, to apologize to me. Uh, the president who had taken the money and left the country got back in contact with me uh, because I got stiffed for several months of salary and back pay and bonuses and stuff like that. And he, he um, said, look, I, I probably robbed you of a lot of money. Uh, and so he wasn't doing super well at the time, but over the course of, the, of a year or a year and a half or something, he paid me back thousands of dollars. He would just like write me a check every couple of months and send me money, just repented and stuff like that. Uh, the people uh, in the company um, became, like over the years, I got to d disciple them. They would trust me. They repented of things that they thought about me. Another company was born. A lot of great things happened, but it took over a decade to materialize. And that's really the meat of the story for me, right? In those 10 years, every so often, I would be tempted to get angry about that situation. And that's how Satan gets you. Offense, right? Ego, pride. They're thinking ill of me. They're thinking I'm the low person on the totem pole. They're thinking I'm expendable. Uh, and that was terrible. But because I was able to endure it, because God forced me to endure it, let's be, let's be honest, uh, eventually righteousness grew uh, from that situation, uh, eventually. Um, the story, there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, eventually, dozens of people uh, were called to reconciliation. I sent Sony, went back to the East Coast to kind of uh, be part of this meeting where things were set right, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea, though? It can take a long, long time to see fruit from servanthood. But it doesn't make it any less powerful. And it doesn't make the temptation to feel offended uh, any easier uh, to manage. But that's our kingdom calling. A scripture today is from Mark chapter 9. Let's go through it quickly. It's kind of another version of this teaching, Jesus' stock teaching on servanthood. This one is a little richer. We'll just go through this and call it a day. So what has happened in Mark chapter 9 in this story is that um, there's just been, in the first half of this chapter, this cool healing miracle. Uh, this father had brought a little boy who was incredibly sick. Uh, there was evidently some demon involved. The kid had some sort of neurological manifestation. He would have seizures. It had robbed him of speech, uh, the problem. 
he often fell into fire or water. Uh, the father says, this little kid is in really, really sorry shape. And so this father brings the kid to the disciples. Jesus is away on retreat at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. The father brings the kid to the disciples for healing. And the disciples try to heal the kid and fail. They fail to heal the kid. And we're said that when they fail to heal the kid, well, all the religious experts that were in the crowd watching, uh, they got uh, upset with them and started accusing them of being fake and all this stuff. And, and everybody was arguing with everybody. That was the situation. Jesus comes down from the mountain uh, through a combination of power, goodness, and cleverness. He ends up uh, healing the boy. Uh, and then he takes the, his disciples on a retreat with them. He, he, wants to, he wants them to recover, maybe learn some things uh, from, from the situation. One of the things Jesus had told them in the midst of their failure was that there was a lack of faith involved. In, in the Matthew version of this story, the disciples say, why couldn't we heal the kid? And Jesus says, uh, because you have such little faith. And it's out of this story he would eventually go on to teach the, if you have just mustard seed faith, you can move a mountain. So he diagnoses bad faith attitude, bad faith mindset, or fear mindset, something like that. And then he's taking them on retreat, and that's, that's where we pick up the story. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Uh, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He was using this as an opportunity to build them up. He said to them, the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So Jesus' first response to uh, the disciples' failure and mindset corruption is to tell them that he was going to get killed, uh, but it was going to be for other people. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Evidently, they'd been arguing with one another, but they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Well, that doesn't sound like a great mindset. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, by this point in the Gospels, they must have heard him say that a hundred times. So he goes through it again. Anyone who wants to be first must be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant of everyone. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Children, uh, as you probably know, you study the Gospels, very, very low status in that culture. They were to be seen, but not heard, and preferably not seen. That was sort of, children were considered unclean little creatures. Um... And so for Jesus to say, you got to be like this, this is what you have to accept, would have been a very poignant illustration to the disciples. So what's going on here in this story? Uh, as I mentioned, the disciples had failed. 
Um, Jesus has already told them, well, the problem was your faith mindset is not very good, boys. Uh, and then he responds to that situation by taking them on a little retreat and first saying to them, well, in a little while, I'm going to get killed, just so you know. Uh, I'm going to get killed. Um, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, apart from the three days he will rise bit, that sounds like a pretty plain statement to me, right? Are there any twists and turns in that statement? Just so you know, I'm going to be handed over to authorities and killed. But it says, <clears throat> they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him uh, about it. What he thinks they needed to hear right then was they needed to hear a little message about sacrifice, about being a servant to the extreme, about Jesus being willing to let himself get killed, even though he knows about it ahead of time. Now, for whatever reason, they didn't understand it, probably because they had no framework for that. They didn't understand the power of sacrifice. They still weren't understanding uh, the power of, of servanthood. Um, and they were too afraid to ask him about it. They were too afraid to say, hey, I'm sorry, we're not smart enough to understand what you're saying. Could you explain that again and help us? They were too afraid to look stupid. Which again is a fear mindset, am I right? Have you ever been too afraid to ask a question because it might make you look stupid? Right? And you've probably heard the proverb, you know, there, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? But we don't believe that. We think, well, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but there are stupid people, and I don't want to be one. You know? But it just tells you the mindset that these guys were in. And then it gets worse, right? Because it turns out that the disciples were arguing on the road, and Jesus plays this so cool. Right? He, like, he walks with them. This had probably gone on for some days. It says they passed through Galilee. They headed to Capernaum. And then he gets them alone privately. And he says, well, what was that argument about? And they're like, ooh, busted. Because they kind of know uh, that they were in a bad uh, frame of mind. What are you arguing about? And again, they kept quiet. They couldn't be honest about it. Right? They couldn't be free. They couldn't be free because they were in fear. They didn't want to look stupid, right? They, they, they didn't want to offend the one who was authority. They didn't want to look offensive. They, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't cop to it. Um, but Jesus knows, right? He, obviously, he had overheard them. They were arguing about who was greatest. Why would they pick this time in, in their journey to argue about who's greatest? And I think it probably because they had just experienced a failure and they were embarrassed about it. So if you're embarrassed about it, what do you do? Well, you blame the other guy, right? That's what they were doing. So when it says they were arguing about who is greatest, I think probably they were also arguing about who is worst, right? Who's the foul up? It's like, well, we could have pulled it off, but, you know, Nathaniel screwed it up like always. And, uh, you know, I told you that when you heal someone, you know, you have to lay two hands on them, but you wouldn't do that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was that sort of thing. 
And some other disciple was like, well, you know, we were the Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so we didn't screw it up. That's all I'm saying. And, and you know, it was that kind of, of discussion. Let's, let's figure out what the proper status is so that, you know, we can get this right and so that I can feel secure and wouldn't have to. It, it's just all fear of man, fear of failure, reputational concerns. It's just all ugliness. And I know none of you guys ever go to such a place but maybe you know uh, someone who does get stuck in that sort of silliness. Um, they're too prideful to admit their mistake. They're too prideful to admit their failure. They're too prideful to admit that they were arguing. They're just, they're just a wreck. And this is all mindset corruption. And then Jesus strikes right at the heart of the corruption. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be powerful, guys, then you have to be a servant then you have to see yourself as a servant. You have to see yourself as the servant of all, of the servant of everyone, even the little kids. Not just serving rich people, not just serving important people, but just serving everyone because you're the lowest of all. That's the attitude and the mindset that you have to have. It's the only way to be free. It's the only way to be free of fear. It's the only way to be free of offense. It's the only way to be free of ego so that you can just have faith no matter what. Because you can't do a miracle and simultaneously be afraid of what somebody's thinking of you if you fail. That's corruption. That's division. Right? You understand? Just wave a fan at me if you understand. Right at me. Right at me hard for a minute if you understand. Gotcha. You get the point? You see what's going on here? <clears throat> this is the key. Servant mindset, it turns out, is the only thing that will protect you from the corruption of pride. And, you know, pride ruins everything. It's the only thing that will protect you from the corruption of fear of what people are thinking or concern about what they ought to be thinking. Because after all, you're not getting the attention you deserve. You're not getting the thanks that you deserve. You're not, right? And you can't simultaneously live there and move in faith and love. You can't simultaneously be self-absorbed and selfless. That's the problem. This is a hard teaching, right? It's hard to hear somebody say, hey, you're just a servant. Get over it and get on with it. You could see why that would be hard to hear. And Jesus drives the point home, uh, this idea of, of, of servanthood with the, with the help of a child. You're a good servant if you serve everyone, even the kids. Even the, because, well, what is it about serving kids? Well, it's not like they're going to give you anything in return. They're just kids. They don't have anything, Right? It's, uh, in some ways, a, a, a thankless uh, job. You can do an attitude check in your life by looking at whom you serve. Whom do you serve regularly? Those who can reward you for serving you or those who can't? Jesus gives a good teaching on that uh, as well. You can turn, because you can turn servanthood into status, right? Like every politician does. Not every politician. I don't mean to be that judgmental. But there are some politicians I hear that maybe are not public servants in the way that they should be. 
At least that's the popular conception. So you can turn service into glory if you play it right. I think in the course of history, the church has sometimes done that, right? Those who lead the churches, who should be the servants of all, instead wrap themselves in pomp and circumstance and authority, and they start giving dictates instead of giving encouragements. And that has often compromised the kingdom. You can turn service into glory, but it won't be service for long if you, if you do that. That's the problem. And as far as sort of embracing kids and, and serving them, I think it's true. I'll say this now because all the people who are serving our kids are not in this service. They're with the kids. But I think you find servant-hearted folks in the cakey ministry, don't you? Right? And that's where they are. <laughs> They're over there taking care of the kids so that we can stay here in the air conditioning and, and be adults. Uh, and, you know, just have to be humble enough to admit that. No one is, is over there working with the kids for pride. That's not why they're over there. And I just got to give them props for doing that. I wouldn't do it to their face because then that would feed their ego. And we want to do it. So let's just keep this secret. Shh. And those of you who are cakey ministers, but you're in here this week, forget that I said this. Uh, but no one serves our cakey for the sake of, of pride. You know, they're not, they're not looking for credit. Otherwise, uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be doing it. Okay, so here are some warnings, some tips. Just sort of close the sermon with this, and uh, we can all go get in the pool. If you act like a servant, if you buy it, if you pull it off, and you're like, yes, I'm going to be the servant of all. I'm going to be the low person on the totem pole. I'm going to be the person that serves everyone else. If you act like a servant, then people will treat you like a servant, just so you know. I just want to be clear about that. If you act like everyone's servant, if you act like everyone's lackey, people will treat you like a lackey. Even other Christians will do that. Some, amen. Amen. She's very sensitive about that. Um, because those who hold themselves as a servant and operate as a servant are unlikely to get respect for it. What, what happens is you'll get taken advantage of, right? They will, they will treat you roughly. They will, I don't know, maybe slap you on one cheek, and then you're supposed to offer them the other, right? If you're a servant, if you act lowly, they will take your coat, and then you're supposed to offer your shirt. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. If people see you as a servant, guess what? They will treat you as a servant, and that's where the real test will come. That's where the real test will come. It will be secondary to your act of service. You understand? So I just wanted to say that up front uh, because, you know, this ain't my first rodeo, and I know how these things work. Uh, you won't necessarily get the thanks and the glory that you should for being an all-awesome, moral, virtuous person. If you act like a servant, you're going to get treated like a servant. Now, if you want people to treat you well, you have to train people to treat you well. All right? Uh, you have to train them. You have to act the part. If you want people to treat you as if you're really important, I'm telling you, you have to act as if you're really important, just so you know. You have to, you have to dress in a way that communicates importance and, and self-assurance. When people treat you offhandedly, you can't accept that. You have to call them on it. You're going to need some, some boundaries 
You're going to need to manifest a great deal of self-respect if you want people to treat you with respect. You cannot tolerate people treating you as if you are less than they are. All right, you have to train them. Everybody understand? If you want people to treat you well, you have to train them to treat you well. But if you want to be a servant, you got to do something different. If you want to be a servant, then you just have to love people. There's a difference. That's all I'm saying. There's a difference. And I just want to call it out because there's nothing in the world that encourages you to behave like a servant except Jesus. Right? The world trains you to act in such a way that you get treated well. There is a difference. I just wanted to mention it. Just so we're clear. Now, you know, I mentioned boundaries with people, you know, setting boundaries with people. You don't get to treat me like that. I don't get to treat you like that. You know, boundaries, it's a popular psychological, sociological concept. Are you familiar with personal boundaries? All right, personal boundaries can be really, really useful things. This is not a sermon on personal boundaries. But here's what I would say about personal boundaries. Use them to help other people. Don't use them to protect yourself. That's a general rule. There are occasions in which you should use personal boundaries to protect yourself. But I use personal boundaries. I try to use them exclusively in such a way that will help other people. It's like, no, you know, you don't, you don't get to treat me like your butler because that's not good for you. What I want you to do is to take some responsibility for these things that you messed up in the first place. That's like me being a father or an older brother or a teacher. Sometimes I do that, but I try to do it only to help the other person. Every parent knows this, right? Every parent knows this. In some way, when your kids are small, you are the servant of all servants, right? You are waiting on them hand and foot. At a certain point, what you try to do is to teach your kid to take care of themselves and to do that, you, you, you establish some personal boundaries. Hopefully, those personal boundaries are not infused with your ego. I am sick of you treating me like a butler. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. I mean, I certainly have never gone there as a parent because I have infinite patience. I'm a pastor. It's required of me. But, you know, we try to do those things out of love. Like, well, you know, honey, I've... I've been helping you, but it's time that you grow up and take care of yourself, so why don't you do it this time? And let's make that a rule, even though it seems unfair to you. That should be the spirit in which we move. But, you know, you get it. Every parent knows this, so just be careful uh, with how you use personal boundaries. Use them for good and not for evil. Use them, though. All right, and, and then finally, um, you know, recognition is a double-edged sword. Offense and credit-seeking are tireless opponents. There will constantly be a temptation in your life to want more credit than you're getting. There will constantly be a temptation in your life to want more thanks, more glory, more attention than you are getting. We learned that when we were really, really small. It, it worked for us when we were a kid. You know, we would, we would cry, we would seek attention, we would automatically get it. And then at some point in our life, people started being very rude. And when we complained, they did not respond like servants should. And we've been struggling with that ever since. I'm over 50, I still struggle with it. Um, we are the center of the world and it just doesn't seem like other people are recognizing this as they should. Uh, and the thing about the servant mentality is that, you know, as Jesus points out in numerous teachings, a servant should, be should expect to be treated like a servant. And if you are, then that frees you. 
It frees you from what people think of you. It frees you from the need for glory. It frees you from the need for recognition. You know, that said, it's nice to hear a thank you. And, you know, we try to be a community that thanks one another for the selfless service that we see around here because we're constantly serving one another. Right now, there are some people serving our kids. There are some folks who showed up here today and set everything up so that we could have church and we'll tear everything down when you go. And people just serving you. And it's nice to say thank you. You know, that's not necessarily a temptation to pride, but it is a double-edged sword. It could cut both ways. It could be an expression of love, but it could also be a desire of the ego. And pride is a tough one in this respect. What destroys churches more often than not is offense and infighting, right? We don't necessarily get angry at God. We get angry at one another, can't hang together, and the family breaks up. We become dissatisfied with our station or something like that. That's usually what does it. Uh, just like we see in the disciples arguing with themselves about who is the greatest, who should get the credit, who should get the blame. That's what destroys faith mindset in a group. That's what does it. And it's a toxin that we need to be highly aware of. So here's the technique of life. Here's the technique of life. You say in every situation, how can I serve? Just, just say that to somebody around you. How, how, how can I serve? Just, just go ahead. Just get it out of your mouth. Just try not to, try not to choke on it. How, how, how can I serve? That's a huge key to life. And it's a huge key to mindset. It really frees you up. It really, it really protects you against fear and pride. How can I serve? I just want to be helpful. Everybody, just say that aloud to nobody in particular. I just want to be helpful. If you find yourself in a situation that is tense or humiliating, in that moment you say to yourself, how can I serve someone right now? Right? If you're in a really tense situation at work or in the family or at school or something like that, just, just try it. Trust me. Trust Jesus. In that moment where you're like, oh, this stinks. I can't believe I'm being treated like this. People are treating each other like this. In that moment, just say, how can I serve someone right now? And that will free you. That will empower you to move in faith. It will. Uh, Jesus said so. It is a form of selflessness, which of course is a form of love. Servanthood puts trust and love together, and there's nothing on earth that can resist that.